Hey there, fellow streakers. Jamie and I are happy to be back with you again today. We have a fantastic guest with us today. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Profitable Ideas Exchange, PI, and has been with the company for 17 years. He also has been a consultant to several of the big firms that are out there, Accenture, McKinsey, Baker Tilly, Deloitte, Goldman Sachs, and I could go on and on. He also um, has been teaching at uh, entrepreneurship at Montana State University, where he did his undergraduate work, and he's currently working on his graduate work at Gonzaga. He's married, and we're excited to have him. Everyone, let's welcome to The Streaking Show, Mr. Jacob Parks, and let's start streaking. What is streaking and why should you do it? Streaking is how you set up personal winning streaks. Look at who you want to be and what you need to do to become that person. This is Streaking. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jamie. And we are streakers. Through 30 years of marriage and seven children, we have learned the power of consecutive consistency or streaking. To start streaking is simple. You just follow these three laws. Make it laughably simple. Keep a record and join the streaking community. Streaking is your hidden superpower. With it, you will consistently progress and grow in whatever area of life you want. In this podcast, Jeff and I will share all the fun, exciting, serious, solemn, wonderful parts of family, spiritual, professional, and personal life, and how streaking powers it all. So join us in the conversation, join the movement, and start streaking today. Thank you, I'm so happy to be on. We're so excited to have you on. Thanks for coming. Yeah, Yeah, I'm excited to have you here, definitely. So we're excited to have you on and tell us a little bit about, I'm curious how you got started on Pi, Profitable Ideas Exchange. Tell us a little bit about the company and and kind of how you got started there. Sure. I mean, so many of these things are happenstance, right? So um, I was a senior in college at Montana State University and I had been working as a Mason. I was actually doing the masonry work on Stephen Covey's house in West Yellowstone. Were you, just were you really? Of, yeah, outside of Yellowstone. So it's on the, uh, on the, on Highway 20 going up the hill, he had this beautiful house. And so I was doing masonry work on his house. Masonry is a great career, but it doesn't help you get a professional job. And so I was frantically searching for an internship or something that I could put on my resume that at the very least indicated I could put on nice clothes and go into an office. <laughs> <laughs> so out of nowhere, I'm in this sales class that Norm Milliken was teaching, who's sort of a legendary professor up there. And he had to miss it one day. And so they invited a guest and it was a guy called Dr. Harry Wallace. Um, Dr. Wallace had been an English professor, and then he moved over to the accounting world, and he became the head of business development at Arthur Anderson. And so he was teaching our class, and I found him to be really interesting. Most of the students found him to be bland and boring, but he was telling these stories of real-life experience, and I was sort of enamored with him. And so I went up to him after class, and I said, I know you're starting this business. Um, Could I join you as an intern or something like that? And he promptly told me no. Uh, they didn't have he did, huh? You just they said hired, no. In no they hired someone else. They actually hired someone else. And so in a roundabout way, maybe you could call this streaking. I sort of kept it on my list. Like I want to get this internship. And so a month later, I was doing a class where we were selling raffle tickets as part of this like marketing program for a car. And he had mentioned that he liked cars. So I stopped by his office to sell him raffle tickets. And at the end, he said, all right, you can have an internship. You can come in today. <laughs> and so I started an internship with Pi. And, and honestly, we were figuring out the business model back then. Uh, it was less stress. We had less work, but we also had less compensation and basically no health insurance. So trade-offs, I guess, right? Yes, <laughs> right, yes. Exactly. It's, uh, we've talked about that before, too, that when we were first starting one of our well, when Jeff was first starting one of the companies, at the beginning, it was so much fun and no money. <laughs> right. Exactly but then right. as we got more money, it was a mo- lot more stress and a little bit less of the fun. 
It's true. It's also like uh, the, the the beginning stages, the forming stages of a business are so exciting as you're figuring out yes. the market, the people, the structure, whatever you want to do. But you get to a certain point where you get into running a business, not starting a business, like deciding on vacation, talking with healthcare people. What are we going to do for 401k? And, and while that stuff creates a ton of value for employees, it, it doesn't interest me in the way that starting a business does. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. So as you got into that, so let's back up just a little bit. How in the world did you get into masonry? <laughs> what was that about? <laughs> so, I mean, I was just, so it's, yeah, it's a great question. I was in college uh, and I was, I wanted to stay in Bozeman for the summer. I, I had traditionally, I had a cousin who, who worked in corporate at Albertsons. And so anytime I went home, I, I would work for a few days at Albertsons, as I used to say, stacking fruit in, in the produce department. But I wanted to stay in Bozeman uh, because I, I, you know, I had made friends and I wanted to fish and do all the fun stuff in Bozeman. And so essentially, I just started applying for jobs. Back in those days, you applied for jobs in the paper. Uh, this was pre-Monster.com days, even if you remember Monster.com. Yes. Um, so yes. I, I got a job with this masonry company and I started out by being what they call a hod carrier, which is just uh, a terminology for moving around the heavy stuff. Um, and then eventually grunt, I started, work. exactly very much grunt work. And I did well enough at the grunt work that I started to get to do some of the masonry, which I actually loved doing. Like it's, you know, in our careers, you don't finish the day and look and see, you know, the 70 feet of wall you built. Yes. There was something very filling about looking down at the end of the day, the sun's coming down. It's like, yeah, we, we built that wall we today. That. that feels yep. pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Do you still do masonry work today? Just out of curiosity. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> we have a, I mean, we talked earlier about my wife, but she, in my family, my father was a diesel mechanic. They're all awesome. Do it yourself or fix everything. And, and that just skipped a generation with me. Like <laughs> they, they joke about every Christmas, my, my dad will give tools to me and then always snidely say, well, you know, these are for Amy anyway, my <laughs> wife, because they assume I can't use the tools. So no, I don't do any more masonry work. How did I get that's so good. That does great? your wife use the tools? Is she one that loves doing yeah, she, that? Yeah, That's she does. So great. She picks the stuff, and yeah, I mean, yeah, she has a whole tool set that I'm not interested in opening. That's great. That's great. So as you've as you have gone along, one of the things we like to ask is what has what's taken you on the route of success. I mean, you on all intents and purposes, you may not judge yourself as successful yet. You may look at yourself as there's different things, but on on the outside looking in. You've had you've had quite a bit of of success in the sense that you've researched one book, um, which is how clients buy. You've written another book, Never Say Sell. You've had a, a lot of great success at Pi. What has driven you as you've gone from one success to the next? What are the things inside that you look at and say, you know what, this is what's taken me down that road? Yeah, you're right. I wouldn't consider myself successful. Um, and it's interesting for right or for wrong, probably for wrong, I never had a grand plan in, in the way that some of my friends had a grand plan. I mean, I mentioned my dad was a diesel mechanic. So I think I was sort of brought into the world with a lot of work ethic. And so I sort of, you know, got this job and started working on things that were interesting to me um, and just kept plowing down that path. I will tell you one of the things at Pi that I absolutely love that, that my boss, a guy called Tom McMakin, who I wrote the book with does, is he pulls people aside, particularly senior people, and he says, what's one thing you want to do that's sort of not part of this business? Mm. Um, what could we sort of fulfill in your life that, that's not necessarily going to create a ton of value for this business, but it's going to keep you happy and thus is probably going to end up creating enduring value for us. 
And so my thing was, I want to write a book. Uh, and, and so that's more related to the business, but he was like, we can do that. Like, let's set the process for doing that. Um, but I found that to be a really fascinating way to engage people and get to know them, like to understand what they're trying to accomplish, because we all have things we want to be successful in outside of our current roles and responsibilities. And it's just for every one of us, it's hard. It's hard to go get on the elliptical after work, let alone mm-hmm. carve out time to write a book or, you know, build a masonry wall or whatever it is that you're interested in doing and helping your people carve out that time, I, I think is a really smart thing to do. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. So write a book. Was that from just as you, as you were working with consulting different companies, you were like, I really want a way to disseminate all this information. Or was that something you had wanted to do before? Like, where did that, where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in writing and, and, and I think in reading more so probably, um, I I really love reading. And so I think that if you're a reader, there's a natural itch to write something. Right. Um, but having done it now, I mean, I don't think I knew this going in, but having done it now, I think the great, the great value in writing a book is, is what you learn. Yeah. I just learned so much um, writing a book. It's, it's interesting that the process for writing a book had so many, when I read your book, I was like, oh my God, this is writing a book, like the streaking elements of it. So there's this hotel in Spokane, Washington called the Davenport Hotel. Um, and it's as close to the Algonquin in New York City, as you could imagine, like it feels like literary giants are in there writing novels. And I would go there three days a week, every single time, even sometimes I didn't write, by the way, sometimes I would just sit and walk around the lobby and have coffee. But the action of going and thinking about the book and, and reading transcripts that I've, of interviews or et cetera, that was a key thing for me. And, and interestingly enough, I'm not sure if you both agree with this, I couldn't do it at Starbucks. Like I couldn't get motivated at Starbucks, but at the Davenport, I could get pretty focused on it. On where, yeah, that is so, I love that. I love that story. I love, I love the idea. One of the things that we talk about when we talk about law number one, which is make it laughably simple, is that each person has to decide for themselves what their simple is. And yeah. I hear that same principle in recognizing what was going to motivate you. You're like, I want to be at this place where I feel like people are writing books, where it's inspiring. And so I love the idea of thinking, I you, I don't know if it was a conscious streak, but looking at it and saying, okay, I'm just gonna go to this place three times a week. And that's what facilitated the starting of being able to get to this place where you're like, okay, I'm writing a book because it kept yes. that motivation. It was conscious. And many days I didn't wanna go. You know, you wake up on, you work a 50, 60 hour week on a yeah. Saturday morning, it's like, I gotta go write. You're like, eh. I don't want but to. Going, going to the Davenport is fun. Yeah. That's really good. I, yeah. And to your point, exactly. So I didn't find inspiration at Starbucks, and neither did Jamie. Mm-hmm. A lot of times our inspiration was actually out while we were walking and we would talk through the principles of what the book was and how it worked there. And that's, that's another question I had for you. Cause you wrote, you wrote it with Tom. Would you guys get together and, and talk about it on a weekly basis or how would you guys um, collaborate with one another? So we talk about it nonstop. Uh, that's how we did it. We talked about it nonstop. And truthfully, one of the interesting things, I mean, we're both doing interviews and we're both prepping content. One of the things that I think was a best practice for us is uh, anytime I was about to sit down to write, and this included Saturday sometimes, poor Tom, um, I would call him up and I would be like, so I'm going to write about cross-selling. What do you know about this? And he would give me five or six things. And, and that was sort of the the ending of the blank page there. And I know you know the feeling where you're just like, there's that little blinking cursor that's like, write something, you fool. (laughs) It's like, I don't have anything to write. 
<laughs> but if I have five or six things from Tom that he said, this is interesting, then the sentences sort of flow together. So, so that's how we collaborate. But we should, I should mention, you all are in Utah, right? Yeah, yeah that's correct. We, are now. Yeah. we have the best in-house editing team you could ever have. We have, four, we have four people on our team who have, you know, uh, degrees in writing or writing background that edited the book. I asked about Utah because when Tom and I did the book, we had this elaborate analogy of the pistes of skiing. Ah. That, that basically, we were going to do this big analogy that, you know, green circle, blue square, black diamond, double black diamond and difficulty of, of business development, which is what the book's about. And, and the publisher who's in Hoboken, New Jersey, was like, nobody knows what this is. This is not what we're doing at all. <laughs> uh, and so our editors sort of helped us recreate the book structure in, in the form of what, what we call the diamond of opportunity instead of the, the scheme to stays. I mean, it would probably be a bestseller if, if we had uh, kept the pistes, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But you know, what's amazing is you described that I was, I was skiing all of those slopes, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. <laughs> Colorful imagery is like the most important thing I think in writing. I'm curious. I can't help but ask you all questions too. Yeah. When you finished like writing a book, did you feel this urge to write something in fiction? You know what? Yes. What What do you think? I was looking at you because yeah. you've had that for a long time. I've had that for a long time that I want to write a fiction. And I've started several different yep. fiction novel, novels as part of my writing streak because my writing streak is to write at least one sentence daily. Yep. And, and oftentimes I'll do it for either an article, a book, or a letter. And a lot of times I'll go into a fiction book. So I, I love the world of sci-fi and fantasy. And so that's where I'll go. And I've I've created the rules for my world and I've created all the different characters and I start to write in it. But I, and like you, I don't know what it was. I don't know if you have the same thing, but after we got done with the nonfiction book, I'm like, I would love to write a fiction book because there's no rules. I, I make all the rules. There's I don't have to yes. research it and have it be truth or anything like that. It can be totally made up right out of my brain. Did you yes, have that I, same urge? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I also found it to be 10 times harder. Yes. Yeah. Writing a fiction book. So my partner, Tom, has a, a, a baked manuscript that he's already done, a fiction book. We all do this, by the way. We write one nonfiction book and we're like, I'm Hemingway. I'm most likely Hemingway and I'm going to put together <laughs> some sort of brilliance. Yeah. And then you try to put pen to paper and, and it's, it's just a really hard thing to do is to write a good fiction book. I'm, I just admire fiction writers so much having gone through, which I still write, but it's like, I don't think this thing's ever getting published. Exactly. Well, so one of my favorite fiction writers is Brandon Sanderson. Yep. And to see what he produces, I during the pandemic, so he had a Kickstarter campaign. I don't know if you, you know Brandon Sanderson or have yep. seen any of his work, yep. but this Kickstarter campaign earned $41 million because during the pandemic, he wrote four novels and we're talking novels like huge length novels and like you i just sat back and i'm like how in the world the, did you the come ability up with that? to be able to go back and connect all of the dots in a, in a fiction novel is amazing to not leave any loose ends but to be able to go back and tie it all together is truly a talent it is it really is i agree so yeah in your book on never say uh, on never say sell and we'll get into a little bit of the particulars of the book but you have uh, the first thing that caught me was the dedication to your wife and that she you, you dedicated the book to her and and just that she'd been through this arduous journey and bef- just so all of our streakers know before the podcast i asked jacob if it's okay if i asked him this question <laughs> and he said it was so i just elaborate on that a little bit because it's that's a really neat story 
Yeah, you bet. So it's not being married to me. <laughs> well, that is that is arduous. Um, yeah, so my wife uh, was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, a, a rare one called Churg-Strauss. Uh, we started dating in 2004. We met at a, at a basketball tournament in Spokane, Washington. She did not want to marry me on center court of that basketball tournament. <laughs> what? Um, it's right, not exactly. every girl's dream to get married on the on center, center court. court. <laughs> she, she, she won it eight times, so it seems like she didn't want to do it. Um, but anyhow, uh, we started dating. She went on study abroad. She got Scarlet's fever, which I didn't even think was a real thing. But that kicked off an arduous journey of, of medical circumstances. And then in, in 2005 or six, she was diagnosed at the UCLA Medical Center with this rare autoimmune disease. But more important than the autoimmune disease is how she sort of perseveres with kindness and, and she's gentle. She puts family and other people first all the time. And so that's why I put that note in there. I, I realize now that people are probably like, what's this about? But um, I just admire her attitude so greatly. And, and every day she gets up sort of thinking about giving, not thinking about taking. And I'm probably the only person who's around her enough to see how arduous it is, um, how ill she can be. Like, as an example, she just got another uh, COVID vaccine. And like, for us, it's like a sore arm. And for her, it's like three or four days of nausea and, and frustration. And so oh, wow. to, to have her attitude is is some streak candidly yeah, yeah no kidding that's wow that's amazing so when you put that dedication in there i mean you think a little bit about the the difficulty of writing a book and that's like small in comparison to what she went through absolutely 100 percent. i mean i think about just like we all express the frustrations of our work and and things happening you know not the way we want and, and, you know, she's sort of at home wishing she got the chance to have a career. And, and I try to keep that in mind when I, you know, fly out. I work from home when I fly out of my office, like, can you believe this happened? And she's like, eh, it's not that yeah. big of a deal, man. So, did, so you must have kind of gone through that process together if she got, I'm like you, I'm like, I didn't know people still got scarlet fever. Was that yeah. what led to the autoimmune issue or did was there an underlying issue and that's why she was susceptible to scarlet fever uh, underlying issue i think okay. and some of that is you know hard to know some of that and it's trans i mean she was in italy right so it's like translated yeah. from italian doctors who are like smoking cigarettes in, in the room <laughs> like it's just a different culture over there from a yes. medical perspective um and so she you know who knows exactly how it kind of came to be if it was from something underlying from youth or what um not really sure exactly how it happened but the challenge of you had mentioned that she was pretty athletic growing up, very athletic. So that challenge of then going to this place where you're constantly having to fight not feeling good. That I mean, that's the that's the one thing that we all talk. What is that thing? As long as you've got your health. But if that's you don't right. have your health, you don't have it's because it affects everything you do that's on a right. pretty consistent basis. And so so as you've gone through that, how has that because it sounds like you went through it together if she got it before you were engaged. And then you've, how has that strengthened your guys's relationship as you've kind of worked through that challenge together? Well, I mean, you grow up quick, I guess. I mean, I, I certainly have periods or times when I was whatever, 24 years old, that I probably could have been a much better caretaker, a much kinder partner. Um, but when you're 24, you, you're, you're sort of aloof and you don't know you don't have great empathy when you're a 24 year old sometimes yeah. at least i probably didn't um so we have worked through it together and i think it's been lessons learned for both of us along the way but we do try to sort of use it as an anchor that's like it's not that bad nobody's really sick right now we haven't had a cancer diagnosis or anything like let's just calm down things are pretty good in our world let's try to enjoy these times because 
soon we're going to be in a hospital with someone who's really sick. So like, let's just get back to enjoying ourselves. And she brings that perspective all the time because I think she's fighting to enjoy herself on any given day. Yeah. That's, 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 that is inspiring. And, and like you said, a really good reminder. That's a really good way to look at life where you look at it and you're like, okay, I know it's frustrating right now, but think there's a lot of things that could be a lot worse and there's things that I can still enjoy right now. That's That's really good. Yeah. So in the process of writing the book, never say sell, (laughs) what are some of the things that you learned that would be more applicable? I mean, I know it's in a business setting that you set that, but I'm curious as we have with our audience, there's streakers in every walk of life. Yep. What are some of the principles that you learned along the way that apply more broadly to life in general? Yeah. So I think, I'm not sure if we write about this or if I wrote about this someplace else, but we use this analogy for business development. And so for the streakers, uh, business development is oftentimes in expert services, a little bit of a euphemism for sales, for growing your business. And so the book is about business development, but we use this analogy. Oftentimes you'll hear people who are in sales talk about a sales funnel, which suggests you like throw in a bunch of prospects, run them through some process, throw some people out along the way. And then at the end, you get your opportunities. That's a sales funnel. Um, and, and we think about it more as a garden. Uh, and, and I think there is so much application of what we do with, with this sort of streaking philosophy, which is that you don't throw people out of the funnel. It, it's actually just a time in which you nurture those opportunities. So you're giving different amounts of water, different amounts of sun, different amounts of fertilizer for each of the people along your business development journey, but you're not casting people to the side. Um, And I think that, so there's this theory called abundance thinking that that my boss talks a little bit about. And I am so in favor of this, uh, that effectively you just do stuff like like this, like you, you invited me on this podcast, we're having a blast. You know, it's just something that it's going to be interesting to do. And my guess is something good will come out of this for me. And I think that looking at your life that way and and saying, yes, I have a 12 year old nephew who I'm really close with. His name is Carson, my brother's son. Um, and, And we hang out every Tuesday. We do something together every Tuesday. And the rule in my car is you can't say no. Oh, really? (laughs) You can suggest something else. Like if I say, hey, do you want to, you know, go for a hike today? You can say, I think I'd rather do this. So he has to own the actual thing that we're doing. He can't just say no to me. Um, And I think that's a good way to sort of approach life is abundance thinking. Like absent any sort of negative constraint, I'm going to do this and it's going to redound to the benefit of me or someone else. And I just, I like that way of looking at life. And so I, I try not to get, as I mentioned earlier, I don't have sort of a fully baked plan. I sort of pursue the things that are interesting to me. I really like the analogy of the garden and it's something I hadn't thought about. I know that you had mentioned it to us. I did a little bit of work just for our streakers out there with Jacob um, in Franklin Covey. We did some work with Pi and you probably mentioned it then, but that whole idea that relationships are really a garden. It's, you know, and they're at different stages of development. The relationship is, and I can look at it and say, what it, what is it that this relationship needs at this particular point in time or where are we at this at this stage of the relationship and therefore it may need a little bit more nutrients it may need a little bit more sunshine or it may be something i need to need to back off for a while it just needs to you let the soil settle for a little bit that's exactly right and i think in sales a lot of like if if you're in sales and you have a quota and you have stuff you have to accomplish each quarter you, you, your your mindset often pivots toward what can this person do for me what can jamie mm-hmm. buy 
be so I can get to my quota. And, and the inverse is the totally proper approach, which is what could I do for Jamie that would make her life a little easier and might make her want to engage with what I can do? Uh, what's a piece of value I can send to this person um, for free that, that would be useful for them, but not solicitous, not asking for a deal, uh, but just creating value, which I think in many ways, that's exactly what you all are doing right now. You're inviting me onto this podcast. It's like, I'm just, you're just creating value for me. Um, and, and that's nurturing a relationship. I really enjoyed as you were talking about the funnel versus a garden, as you were talking about the funnel, I was picturing a strainer. And yes. because the strainer, what a strainer does is it strains out all the stuff you don't want so that you get down to the stuff you do want. And I'm like, Ooh, we don't want to feel that way in sales. I mean, if, if you feel like the salesperson's coming to you or actually, I guess anything, anything. in life, That's what I was gonna say, anything. I'm here to put you through the strainer to see if you're going to be what I want that comes out <laughs> at the bottom or if you're going to be the stuff left over that I throw away. That's a huge different visual for me than looking at it as a garden and, yep. and being able to nurture and grow and recognizing that, that different things bloom at different times throughout the year and and I appreciate that. I appreciate that things bloom differently throughout the year. I wouldn't want everything to bloom at the same time. And I wouldn't want everything to look the same in my garden. And I wouldn't treat everything the same in my garden. And so I really like that. And then I also think about the joy that a garden brings people um, in the sense of, to me, that's that to me would be a lot more beneficial in a sales environment that you're, you are nurturing relationships and you are building value. I had a little bit of a thought too with streaking and I don't know if this will tie in so because I'm saying it right off the cuff. So if like it, it doesn't make sense, then, you know, glimpse into <laughs> the brain of Jamie. But as I was thinking about streaking, I thought in a lot of ways, it is a lot like nurturing a garden in the sense that I can't pay the same amount of attention to everything when I do my streaks, but I don't want to ignore the things that are important to me. But there are definitely times where with my streaks, there's streaks that I'm doing that I'm just I'm just keeping them alive. I'm, there's not a huge amount of of focused attention going towards them because that focused attention may be going to something else that is important at that time. But by keeping that garden alive, by still watering it and and nurturing it, there do come times that I start to notice. Oh, I really want to pay attention to this particular streak, and I want to take it a little bit further. I want to do something more with it. And I love that because I've had the streak going, I'm able to, to one, notice that I want to do that, but also two, I feel like I have a place of starting that is more motivating than this place of guilt where it looks at, where I look at it and think, oh, I haven't been doing this thing at all. I've got to get started. Instead, I'm starting at this place where I'm looking, oh, I've been doing this for a while, but I'm feeling inspired that I really need to focus more on this area of it. And I want to put more energy and more attention to it right now. And I love that. So I don't know if that's similar to that garden feeling um, of being able to just nurture things, but not everything gets nurtured at, at the same volume or intensity or in the same way at the same time, because truly that's not possible and it's not really necessary. Mm -hmm. or healthy. So, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's not helping. Yeah, so we use this analogy of some things in the garden are lettuce and some things in the garden are oak trees. Yes. And they require different levels of attention. Uh, an oak tree doesn't require much, but it might take a long time to grow. So simple streaks, a little bit at a time, that's an oak tree. Yes. But a lettuce is a relatively rapid event, right? You put it in the ground, you water it, 
I'm not a gardener, so I, I don't know how, how, how I'm going to do this analogy. <laughs> well, it grows faster than an oak tree. We know that. It grows faster than an oak tree. We know that. Um, and so anyhow, like that's how we, we use that analogy to say some things you got to put a lot of time and attention to for quick return. Other things you need to just be there at the right time. There's a guy right. called Dave LeBeau who we quote in the book, and he says he's talking to one of his big prospects. I think he was at EY at this time. And he said, I, I got this big deal with this client. And he said, why did we win that? We thought for sure those people were going to win it. And he said, you won it because there's a guy called Dave who's here when there's no work to be won. Uh, and that's just streaking, staying in touch with your customer, doing right by them. It's it's oak tree, right? You can't you can't call them every day. That'd be annoying. Right, so right. Hanging around the hoop, being there to be helpful when, it's, when there's an opportunity, that's streaking and that wins you work in, in our world, especially. Yeah. Yeah. You know, great, great point there. I, I want to revisit. I want to keep going on this for a second, but I, I want to stay. I want to go back to the rule that you had in the car with your yeah. nephew. That's going to be one we're going to visit in just a second. But I want to stay with this for just a second more because it's it's somewhat that thinking is opposed to a lot of the way that sales is done today in the sense of the funnel and everything else. I, I mean, I, I know I'm in sales, I've done a lot of sales, and being able to cultivate the garden is is almost 180 to the whole mentality of, we got to get this done now. How do you combat that? What do you, what do, you do to work with that 180, almost counterintuitive uh, mindset? I mean, we all suffer from it. I mean, it's just, it's just a real thing. Like, we have investors, we have people we have to satisfy. So like, at the end of any given quarter, we're like, ooh, uh, we, we got to shake some trees. We're not going to let these apples fall off the tree. We're going to shake this tree. Uh, and, and I think you just have to do your best to not do that. And I think the second thing is, and this is always true, and I'm a Luddite, so this is not my wheelhouse, but the data sets you free. We are so much more successful when we do it with the garden approach than when we try to cold call people and win deals quickly. It just doesn't work. Um, th there was an there was an was a boxer or someone who said one time like everybody's got a plan until they get punched. Mike Tyson. Oh, yes. Mike Tyson. Um, and so <laughs> that's sort of how we approach it. Is like you sort of have a plan, but there's a lot of twists and turns along the way that you should be ready for. Uh, going in and just executing against your predetermined plan doesn't ever work in business development, in my experience. Every now and again, you can grab something off the tree, but it, it's just. And also, like, so there's there's another thing in how clients buy it that I think it does go to planning that I really like for this that we call shrink the pond and narrow cast, which can be a little scary as a salesperson, but it's effectively ask yourself, who do I have the right to work with? Um, and it's actually not that many people. We did an interview with the CEO of McKinsey for the book, and he said, somewhat degradingly, uh, in my world, there's about 250 relationships that move the needle for me. And if I nurture those relationships, I'm going to have a ton of success. And he said, for someone like you, it's probably 50. Um, and I think it's really, he's right though. Like if you understand who you want to serve, it's easier uh, to sort of nurture your garden than if you, if you think you're growing palm trees and winter plants at the same time. Like you have to decide who you have a right to serve and put them in your garden. Really love this. You're, you, I can see your wheels are turning as far as as you think about it in relationships. I mean, this yeah, is significant in because a relationship doesn't take a plan. I mean, it, it's not you know you meeting your wife and the things that you guys have faced in your life. That was not a predetermined plan and a sales funnel. That's <laughs> that right. Was... Exactly right. It doesn't work that well, way. When I think about in in as a mom is raising children, 
I think it's the same thing. Like you, you can have a plan until that first kid comes along and then everything. <laughs> that's the first that's punch. That's the first, yeah, that's the first <laughs> punch. But it's interesting because you have some sort of a plan that gets you, that gets you going which I think you do have to have some semblance of like, okay, I've got, I know a general idea of what I'm doing and what I'm trying to accomplish. But what I hear you saying is probably the truth with anything is that you are working with people and people don't fit into plans all the time. And so you've got to be able to understand which people you're going to be working the best with and how to work the best with them and not to, not to, as you were talking about, what was it? Narrow the pond. Shrink the pond. Shrink the pond that. and narrow yep. the cast. And yep. so understanding where you're going to be putting your time valuably, which is really good. Because, yeah. And I'm glad you answered that question because thinking about it from sales, what I heard is because sales, I mean, when it comes down to it, you have to meet numbers. If you're not selling anything, you're not going to keep your job. No. And so, there, so that's a part of it. But what I hear you saying is there's a short-term way of doing this where you're just like, all that matters is the number. And you may get that number for a little while, but it's not going to necessarily be a sustainable and effective way to continue getting numbers. You're going to have to look at the long-term of building those relationships. And so that's what I heard. Yeah. We do a certain exercise in our planning where we say, if you had to sell something in 60 days, who would you call? It's always current clients. And if you had to build the plan for this business for the next three years, what would you do methodically? And it's a good way to set your strategy. Like if we needed, if, if we lost a big client, we needed sales, what would we do? So we do. And as we go forward and build the business the way we want to, with some semblance of a plan, this is what we're going to do. I sort of like that question for people. I do too. And that's where streaking comes in. What would you do methodically? Yeah. Because that's right. what we talk a lot about is what are you going to do every day, every week, every month? And that's where a streak comes in and the streak asks the question differently is how many days in a row or how many months in a row or how many uh, weeks in a row can you do this thing so that you challenge yourself in a way that I'm doing the things that are going to be beneficial for either my clients, myself, my what, whatever it is, and I'm doing them consecutively and consistently. Yep. Which, which really the thing that I've learned from doing that is your questions are different and your answers are different when you've been doing something consistently than they are when you're theoretically thinking about doing it consistently or when you've been not consistent at all. Hmm. So I do feel like there's a huge amount. As you start doing something consistently, the questions that you're asking and the answers that you're getting when you have, like you had said, the data of being like, okay, I've been doing this consistently, it changes that yeah. so that you're getting better questions and better answers. That's right. I was just, I just did a facilitation of like an, um, uh, an e-commerce meeting where these folks are talking about best practices for their e-commerce business. And one of the things that was super cool was the way that they test their different uh, strategies with like TikTok and Instagram. Like they have these videos and they have these testing channels that they send them out to and they get the reactions. And it's like, oh, this one is a hit. And then they use that one to sort of promote the brand. It's just like a fascinating way to sort of send up a trial balloon and then pursue the strategy, I think as a streaking, you know, that's working best, but to kind of figure out which streak matters the most. To your point earlier about the garden, like you can't grow everything, but it was cool to see how they're using data to inform their everyday activities. Yep, yeah. I had a question for you. So you mentioned the um, interview that you had with the CEO of, of McKinsey and he talked about he had 250 people. You probably have 25 or something like yep. that. Yep. Mm -hmm. He so gave him 50. He gave him 50? Yeah. It was, it was actually my boss too. Like I didn't do that interview. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. The, the boss got 50. <laughs> what, what I'm curious about is 
how do you know which 50 or how do you know which 250? Did you guys get into that at all as far as what? Yeah. So for, for the, the person at McKinsey, I think it's clear, right? It's the fortune 300 CEOs. That's who they serve. It's like McKinsey's McKinsey, right? They right. get, they get relationships with the most senior people. But I do think for any of us in our businesses, it's a good exercise to go, who are our current clients? What are the characteristics of our current clients in size, in industry, in, in, in personnel, uh, and sort of building a strategy for connecting with people who are close to that. Um, you know, you can't work for Sal's Pizza and then expect to sort of win the Domino's account. Like those are different beasts. Um, and, and you have a right to serve one and you don't have a right to serve the other. And I think one of the things that we see, because we serve a lot of people who are spinning out and starting their own consulting business, is they come from a big firm. And the answer is we can do anything. Like you want an IT integration, we got it. You want a strategy project, we got it. But when you start your own firm, it's actually the inverse. You need to do one thing really, really well to get a foot in the market, and then you can expand from there. But a, a single practitioner who can do everything, nobody really believes that. Yeah, right. No one does. So that so which begs the next question: How do you start leveling up? How, you know what I mean? How do, how do you level up to where you are if you wanted to be? If that was your goal to be a McKinsey, how do I level up to that? If that's where I want to go? I mean, you know. Not to plug your book, but it's methodically doing the right things every day. And I day. didn't like, set it up that way, just so you know. <laughs> just, I mean, literally just marching up the ladder of people that you can serve and adding capabilities along the way. But I think I would probably just put emphasis on serving your current clients really well. Um, we have this sort of diamond of opportunity in the book, and it's like all these different ways that you can grow your business with your with your current accounts, right? And one of the things that's the very bottom, the easiest lever of the diamond, we call do good work, because good work begets more work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I would put emphasis on just do an absolute home run job for the clients you have, uh, and move from there. Yeah, that's I think about that also in um, just going a little bit more broadly do good work, do good things, serve in, in a way that is significant and will add value to other people's lives as you do right. in business or anything else. And that good work will continue, you'll continue to level up. So you could, good. so you could, I was thinking about how you would do a streak around that. So do good work. If you were to have a list, these are all of my current clients and your streak was, I'm going to review that list. Just look through it each day and ask myself the question, is there anything that I can do for these people today. That's really good. Like that would for just ask, be the street. At least do uh, review at least one client a day and ask, what can I do for them? What can I add value? I mean, yeah. let's let's test it against the expert here. I mean, I love that. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it it just sounds obvious, I think, to the three of us, but I think that's a pretty novel concept. I mean, I don't think that people have that framing. The framing is the opposite. What can I do to sell these people something and get my quarterly number or whatever it is. Right. But the idea of just waking up and saying, how can I make their life a little better is, is smart. And I also would encourage people who are serving clients or doing stuff in the community or whatever is to drill down to how it impacts the individual you're working with, not just the company. Uh, because those motivations are strong and they influence how decisions are made at companies. And I think we often overlook the, the career hopes uh, and dreams of an individual or the fact that that person needs to spend a little more time with family, that they're overworked right now. All of those things are often overlooked in the grand scheme of serving clients. And I think they're more important than people realize. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because I feel like that's one of the antidotes to a lot of the ills that are currently in our society. I'm going global now. 
Um, but not global, but Jeff always teases me about that. That's why I said that. Um, I love the idea of seeing a person, not grouping them, not seeing just the organization, not seeing all of the things that they're associated with, but taking a minute and just seeing them as a person and how much that can really help us to recognize how many things we actually have in common and how many things we're actually working together on when you look at someone and see them as an individual. Yep. So Don't I, give I your clients that. a personality. Yeah. yeah. Or your church or your city council Anything. or whatever. There's individuals Anything. on all of those. Yes. Every, every, and, and it really is something I think we have to fight with all of the technology changes that we've had and our access to social media and the constant news sources of being able to look into things and think all of these are people, like individual people with lives and desires and personalities and it changes the way that you that you approach things. And so I love that you say that same thing, that same approach will make changes in a sales environment where you're like, this is still a person and right. with a life outside of my association with them. So I wanted to go back to your uh, your rule in the car. Yes. Can't say no. <laughs> Can't say no. That that is um but but one of the things that you added to it that I hadn't thought about was you can make a different suggestion. Yeah. You just can't say no. So it's either that one or that one. Where did that come from? Yeah, and what, did... what what was the genesis of that whole thing? Too many no's. <laughs> <laughs> Without a suggestion. I mean, I, so, uh, you know, I've been spending time with, his name's Carson, for, he's 12 now, for 12 years. And I, I spend time with his sisters as well. And so it's like, you pick him up in the car. It's like, so it's Tuesday afternoon. Do you want to go hiking? No. No. Uh, you want to go down to the park and, you know, walk around Riverfront Park? No. No. What would you want to do? I don't know. And so, the, 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 you know, it's like you have to own, and I think this is another thing with streaking, like you have to own your own destiny. Like you have to do the work. No yeah, one else yeah. can do the work for you. I can't make you have a fun Tuesday afternoon. If there's something you really want to do, let's do it. Uh, it also just puts the onus on, on young people to chart their own path. I want to do this. And it's okay to have an opinion like that. You don't have to satisfy me. I'm here for you. We don't have to play golf because I like golf or we don't have to go hiking because I like hiking. Let's do what you want to do, but you should have a point of view about it. So when you came up with that, as far as, as you think through that, having the alternate suggestion, I mean, was it, I, I know it was too many no's, but there had to be a moment like that light bulb moment where you're like, I'm not going to do no's anymore. We got to have something different. Yes. I mean, we had, you know, <laughs> yes, we had, and it, it had just, you know, we had redounded to too many, like, on some level, he was taking me through a decision tree, it seemed like, to get to what he wanted, which was like oftentimes going to the arcade, which I rarely allow him to do, only after good grades or something. <laughs> He's basically just walking me through a decision tree of where he wants to get. And it always ended up at the same place, the trampoline park or the arcade. And I'm like, we gotta go outside and hike some days and you know, we gotta do other things. Uh, and so I got frustrated with the decision tree over time and was like, fine, you have to have something that right. you want to do. And for whatever reason, he feels too sheepish to be like, take me to the arcade. So he has better suggestions usually. Yeah, that is so great. I love it. What a fun process. Why, why, didn't I find, why didn't I find this out when our children were first born? I mean, we have seven children and, you know, now I'm down to the last two. I'm going to do this. I know. And I, I, it's great to look at it and be like, look, you've got to own this. And it, I also think it teaches them. It is so easy to just be like, no, no, no. And there is a principle about being able to say no 
and then not give any suggestions back. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. It's like, well, I'm coming up with all the ideas here. Throw me a bone, do something. And so teaching them in this way, that principle of you can say no, but not just no. You have to come up with something, but you've got to add a solution to the to this situation. You can't just say no and wait for everyone else to come up with the solution that fits what you want to do. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I was a latchkey kid, um, and I think we've done a lot to create safety for our children, and mm. rightfully so. I think it's a good thing. Um, but these kinds of activities encourage them to chart their own path in the way that I used to have to figure out what I was going to do all afternoon until my parents got home because I left my key at home. Yes. There's a streak for you. I'm leaving my keys at home. I did that all the time as a kid. Um, I'll just sit here on the porch and wait for someone to come home. I did that many times, (laughs) you can imagine. But if we can invite our young people to own their own path without Mm -hmm. putting them in any additional risk, then I'm all for it. Right. Absolutely. Go ahead. Well, so one one other thing on this. Um, The other thing that it does, I was thinking the other side of it. If he makes a suggestion that you don't want to do, you, the onus is on you to come up with something as well. I mean, because the rule applies oh, yes. both ways. Of course it does. Yes. And that's that's gotten me before. Because <laughs> yeah. he'll be like trampoline park. And I'm like, dude, I'm mm. over 40. I'm not sure I want to go to the trampoline park. <laughs> that used to be fun. Not quite exactly. so much. Great when I was 25 when you weren't alive, but not anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That is so good. I'm sorry. I'm picturing the trampoline park and just looking after seven children. I'm like, yeah, I don't even, I can't even look at a trampoline anymore. (laughs) But there is something of value to, there is a part where I'm like, yes, you should go do that while you still can. Like you should go jump (laughs) and do those flips. Enjoy that. You're right. I agree with that. Because it does go away and and it's not the same. (laughs) You're here. Oh, that's awesome. Did you have another thing no, that you that want to ask about? So the other thing, so in in writing the book, and as we uh, we come up on time here, which this has just been exhilarating, we, Super we have fun. to do it again. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but what were what are in your career now? So your chief operations officer, you you consult a lot of different clients. You work with a lot of different clients. What are the, some of the things that you find exhilarating today that you really enjoy? I mean, I always have enjoyed probably the same thing, which is engaging with the people and asking people questions. So I, I did all the interviews for how clients buy and I'm, I'm doing the, I did the interviews for never say sell for the most part. And I've signed up to write another book, uh, no title yet, but that I'm working on with, with, uh, a new gentleman who's on, um, who's the chairman of our board. Now he used to be a McKinsey partner. So we're going to write another book together and I can't wait to dig into the interviews, uh, ask people questions because again, going back to abundance thinking, it's how we come across new solutions. It's how we come across new services is just asking people a bunch of questions about what their pain points are. And, and I enjoy that part way more than the, the writing. I like the writing. I hate the structure. Uh, structuring a book is really hard for me because uh, I want to pull on every string I can pull on. Um, and you shouldn't do that. You should have a structure in mind and like have a process. Um, but I really just enjoy when we train people to do these interviews, I call them recliner interviews. So I always tell people, get away from your desk, get a recliner if you have one, put your notes away because we're going to record this thing and ask questions that you think are interesting and invite them to tell stories. Um, Other interviews can be methodical and sort of structured. And if you start uh, reading through questions, I know you both know this, to do a book interview, what you're going to get are short answers that are completely useless. You're going to go to your quotes when you start writing and you're going to have a bunch of yeses and uh-huhs and you're going to go, 
Hmm. That's not so quotable. Not is it? helpful. Yeah. Uh, and so you want to invite them. Tell me the like. I, I remember asking this person who I'm writing this new book with. Tell me the like the, the wildest thing you've ever done to meet a prospect. And he goes, one time when I was young in my career, I couldn't get a hold of this person, and so I went to the parking lot of their office building and I sat in my car and waited for him to show up. And I got out of the car and pretended to bump into him on the way into the building. He said, "Oh, hey, fancy seeing you here." And I got a meeting, and that stuff you can write off. Yes, like that stuff is easy to write. Uh, and so inviting stories like that moves the needle for me, at least when it comes to writing, but also kind of getting my enthusiasm for the street going as well. Yeah. yeah What's probably great is he probably thought, wow, I haven't thought about that story in years. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Right. I love the phrase also, tell me about it. Mm -hmm. Tell me is that there's something magical about that phrase yeah. where yes. when you, when, when I say to someone, tell me about this. Yes. Or tell me about an experience when that all of a sudden just elicits so much more than uh, how have you found clients or how have you been able to find people to buy? It just it, it's a totally different uh, tenor and tack. I feel the same way about the phrase. Are you open to? Mm. Oh, that's a good one, too. It's like, oh, I don't want to be closed off to anything. Yeah. yeah. Of, course I'm, of course, I'm open to it. What do you mean? It's like it's a great closing. It's like a great it's a great sort of trial close, if you will. There is, um, so in, I was reading Daniel Pink's book, uh, To Sell as oh, Human. Yeah. Brilliant book. <laughs> and in there, he referenced a book to, he suggested a book to read, which is Impro, Improv for Theater. I don't know if you've read that. Yes, I have. And okay. in there, Accept versus Block, that yep. whole principle, Accept versus Block, has changed my life. I it's mean, changed our it's, family's life. Yeah, it it's really It's become has. something now that we, we you're blocking. Yeah. You're, you're blocking. It's like, this is improv and we have to accept. We it's almost accept like the same thing in the car. We accept it and, and okay, I'm going to consider that. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to improv with you. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. I love that. <laughs> so, That's a great book too. Well, this has been a fantastic is... conversation. Jacob, thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you. Yeah, we've we've really enjoyed it. Thank you also for um, what you've said regarding streaking. We love your books. Never Say Sell is a run written by Tom and Jacob. And if you want to get it, you can get it at Amazon or anywhere books are sold. You can also get How Clients Buy, which I really enjoyed that book as well, which Jacob did a lot of the interview work for. And then obviously he's got his third book that's coming up. Jacob, is there anywhere else that you'd have people reach out to you or that they can contact you? Just on LinkedIn. Just on okay. LinkedIn. Yeah. That'd be great. And if you'd like to get a hold of Jamie or I, you can do that at Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y at streakingmastery.com or Jamie, J-A-M-I at streakingmastery.com. You can also buy the book, The Streaking Book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble or anywhere books are sold. And you can download the Streaking app, which is the social media app for self-improvement. And it's something that you will be absolutely mesmerized by as you see people complete streaks and improve themselves one streak at a time. Well, until we talk again next time. Better.